Well, good morning. Happy New Year's Eve. It's an exciting time every year. And uh, a new year for most people is a pretty wonderful thing. Although if you think about it in reality, how much different is today than tomorrow is going to be? It's really not a whole lot different. But with tradition and with the calendar and the lunar movement, there is some amount of difference. And we celebrate that. It often represents a fresh start filled with new opportunities, right? When we look to the new year, we get excited. We think about the possibilities. Most organizations and families begin a new fiscal year. They look at their budget. It's an opportunity to spend again. If you're like me, I've been getting emails and letters from lots of organizations saying, if you haven't given yet, here's your last opportunity in this year. Take advantage of the tax opportunities that lay before you. It's an opportunity to consider the last 365 days and ask what was good. To also ask what was bad. What was exciting? And also to ask what has been difficult. There's a lot that can happen in 365 days. There's ups and there's downs. There's blessings and there's trials. If you think about it personally, There's been great times where you look back and you go, man, that was a good day. And there's probably some, maybe many days where you look back and go, that was a very hard day or week or month. Or maybe it was a hard year in its entirety. It's a marked measure of time that allows us to stop and reflect So I think January 1st is filled with great opportunity to both look backwards and to see what God has done in our lives, both the great things and the many blessings and those hard trials that we need to reflect on. That we need to ask ourselves and spend some time in prayer and ask the Lord, Lord, what are you doing and what are you trying to teach me? And what are you trying to teach us? I think we can do that in our church. Who would have expected that at the beginning of this year, our pastor, Will, who was here, by the end of the year, would be in Florida? Who would have expected that at this point, we'd have multiple people teaching and we'd be in a pastoral search? In your own family, there's been... life, and there's been death. There's been wellness, and there's been sickness. There's been a lot that has happened in the last 365 days of this year. But a new year also represents the opportunity to make some changes when you look back and you go, What could I have done better? What should I have done differently? What would I like to do in the next 365 days that will be different from the last 365 days? It's an opportunity to set goals and to embrace forward hope on future graces. A lot of people make New Year's resolutions But have you ever considered how New Year's resolutions started? Have you ever thought, what's the history of that? When did that actually start? Was it some guy in Poughkeepsie, New York, who goes, you know what? I'm going to make some changes this year. I'm going to tell my friends about it. Everybody goes, oh, that's a great idea. What should we call these things? New Year's resolutions. Well, no, it started way back before then, about 4,000 years ago. In fact, 
The Babylonians historically are known for making resolutions. They didn't necessarily call them that. But what they, what they would do was look back at the previous year and then look forward at the beginning of their year. And they would have long celebrations, usually about 12 days. And they would think about their behavior in the past and wanting to please their pagan gods, would look forward to the next year and say, what do I need to change in order to please our gods better? Taking their cue later on, the Romans did the same thing. Julius Caesar is, he's given uh, recognition that he is the one who changed our calendar to what it's most likely like today, with a few changes after him. But Julius Caesar changed our calendar to 10 months, and then two more months was added. In fact, the month of July is named after Julius Caesar. And most of our dates, our months, are named in honor of Roman gods, unfortunately. And then you have the last four months of the year that are actually just Latin terms for what time of the month they are. But the Romans would make resolutions, again, thinking about how their gods would want to be pleased with them in the new year. And later, for early Christians, as Christianity began to dominate the world, the first day of the year became the traditional occasion for thinking about past sins and resolving to change in the new year. In fact, in 1722, Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan preacher on the East Coast in New England, he played a significant role in the Great American Awakening, a spiritual Great Awakening. He wrote 70 resolutions. And these resolutions were regarding his own personal holiness. I would encourage you to look up Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. They're amazing. And he wrote them, I think, as a 19-year-old young man. A young man who cried out and said, I want so vigorously, so vehemently, with all violence to grasp onto whatever will bring me joy in the life to come. And there's 70 resolutions that he wrote to pursue God in a more faithful way. Later in 1740, John Wesley, we have many hymns written by John Wesley. He's the founder of Methodism with his brother. He created the Covenant Renewal Service, which was held on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. You might know it as watch night services. I don't know about you, but I grew up in a church that every New Year's Eve would have a watch night service, and we would gather together, and we would have a service to ring in the new year. And it was a reminder of what God has done and what God will do in the coming year in his faithfulness. And then every family would bring a bunch of burritos and we'd have a burrito bash afterwards. And it was kind of a way for families in our church to gather together and have a party that was unlike the secular parties that were going on. But to celebrate the faithfulness of God. And that still continues to this day. Now, New Year's resolutions are mostly secular practices in our culture, right? Instead of making promises to God or the pagan gods, most people make resolutions only to themselves. Maybe they tell their families about them. And they focus purely on self-improvement, which probably explains why such resolutions seem so hard to follow through on. In fact, according to recent research, well, as many as 45% of Americans say they usually make New Year's resolutions, only about 8% are successful in achieving their goals. Maybe you or someone you know and love is a person who makes New Year's resolutions. I think it's healthy, and I think it's good with proper motivation to resolve to do something new, to look at your behavior, to look at your disciplines, and to say, what can I do better in this new year? In fact, our family is doing 12 hard things collectively. We've chosen one thing per month, and we're going to try to do that every day in each month. And we'll evaluate it at the end of that month to see if we want to continue that, modify it, or get rid of it altogether. 
Some of my funny ones are I want to learn to play the banjo. I've had a banjo for, I think, going on nine years. I can play one chord on it. But it'll take practicing every night, and I've resolved to practice one of these months for 30 minutes a day, and hopefully I'll be able to play one song at the end of that time, and that'll motivate me to keep going. I want to lose 10 pounds. I want to drink 64 ounces of water every day for a month. These are some of my resolutions, some things that I just personally or spiritually want to do better on. I think it's healthy to look at our time ahead of us and to strive to make changes. And this morning, as we look at the passage in front of us, Psalm 127, this is a psalm of ascent. And a psalm of ascent was meant to be sung on a journey of worship. As the people of God traveled up and through mountains, they would sing these songs of ascent. The songs recorded in Psalms 120 through 134 were songs reminding the people of God's grace, mercy, provision, protection, and salvation. I believe this psalm in particular gets to the heart and motivation of making and keeping plans, not just for the new year, but for all of life. So I think it's fitting for us to look at Psalm 127, and I want to focus on the first two verses, even though there's only five. I want to focus on the first two, and maybe if we get an opportunity, I'll get to the next three verses to show how they fit together, because at first glance, they look kind of disjointed and weirdly put, but I think there's a bigger picture going on here. So let's look at Psalm 127, a psalm of Solomon, the king of Israel, the son of David. Verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to bed, go, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Let me pray and ask that the Lord would speak his truth to us, that he would reveal what he wants for us to hear as a church and individually, that the Holy Spirit would be working in us to convict, to edify and to encourage us this morning as Applegate Community Church. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we look to you this morning. Speak, O Lord, as we hear your truth. Your word is truth. You sanctify us by your word. Lord, as we look to a new year, we look past to the past, the past 365 days. We look to years past, and it's a time to mark a change. Lord, may we look back and see your faithfulness. May we look back and see maybe times where we have stumbled, we have failed to live in a manner worthy of our calling. And may we look forward to hope in your grace that you will help us to walk more faithfully with you, Father. May your Holy Spirit be changing us even now as we speak through your word. May our minds be new together collectively as your people represented at this local church, Applegate Community Church. Thank you for your word, Father. Thank you for what we're about to see. Lord, if there is anything that is in my mind or my notes or my study that does not represent you well, I pray that you would keep that uh, from my lips, that I would not speak it, but you would be honored in all that I say and do, that we would look at your word as one cohesive unit, a theology of an unchanging God, who has made us alive in Christ and made us your people, a royal priesthood, that you dwell among us, that you dwell in us, your Holy Spirit, that our bodies are temples, 
and that one day we will dwell with you forever in the new heavens and the new earth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, again, this particular psalm was written by King Solomon. And I think as we read this psalm, the language may sound familiar to you. If you've ever read Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon as well, you know the word vanity. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. It's a chasing after the wind. And Ecclesiastes is a very interesting book. See, when Solomon became king, he could have asked for riches. He could have asked for fame. He could have asked for strength. And yet, what did he ask for? He asked for wisdom. He asked for wisdom of God to govern the people rightly. And because he did that, God said to him, you asked for something that no one else has asked for. And because of that, because you didn't ask for riches or wealth or strength, I will give you all of those, but I will give you wisdom as well. And Solomon became the wisest man in all the world. So wise that people would come to him to just pick his brain. The queen of Sheba came up and it says that she was so amazed that it knocked her socks off. She said, I knew you were wise, but this, my mind is blown at how wise you are. She fell in love with him. He was so wise. And yet Solomon begins Ecclesiastes and it says, I delved into wisdom and I delved into craziness. He allowed himself to go crazy so that he could see what the human experience was about. And he tells us about that human experience in Ecclesiastes. And at the end of it all, he says, this is the end of man. This is what I got for you. Honor God, work hard, do what's right. If you try to keep too many rules, you'll miss out on the joys of life. But if you don't strive for holiness, you're going to perish in your foolishness. So don't strive too hard to accumulate wealth. Don't work so much that you miss out on life because all those things are vanity. And don't try to live longer than is what is calculated for you before the beginning of the world. You have marked days. So you know what? Work hard and love God. And love your family. That's what you got. And Solomon here is writing the Song of Ascent that has very similar language. It talks about toil and the difficulties of toil. And it talks about doing things in vain. And it talks about making plans. And it talks about the family. But I think there's more that's going on in these couple verses than what meets the eye. I think. I can't know for sure what's in the mind of Solomon. But again, he's the wisest man on earth. And with wisdom comes a collection and a remembrance and an ability to put things together that other people don't have. So when I read verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, when we will look at that together, what other time in Scripture do we involve the building of a house and Solomon and his father David? I want to look at four points as we get into this. So follow me along. The Lord as builder is the first point. The second point is the Lord as keeper. The third point, our response to God's sovereignty. And the fourth point, godly co-laborers. So that first verse, unless the Lord builds the house. As we move forward, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't look at scripture to what I believe Solomon had in mind when he wrote this psalm and these two verses specifically. If you would, turn with me to 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 12. Second Samuel 7.
When God had men write scripture, they were inspired, but he also used their life experiences, their memories, who they were and their character to help direct them in their writing. It's called plenary inspiration. And I think the authorial intent of what Solomon was writing, I think he has this in mind. 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 12. I mean, actually in 1 Samuel. It's like, that does not look right. <laughs> Let me get over to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 7. There it is. Now, when the king lived in his house, and this is talking about David, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought, I was brought up, since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from, the fo from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies. From before you, and I will make you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they will dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people and Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, you shall who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from me, from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. David was not allowed to build the house of the Lord. He wanted to. He wanted to honor his God by building a steadfast, immovable temple because God was dwelling in a tent and he did not find that fitting for his God. It's honorable. It was right that he wanted to do that. Even Nathan the prophet said, whatever is in your heart, God is with you, go and do it. But then God came and spoke differently, did he? Didn't he? He did. He said, no, not at this time. The Lord didn't allow David to do it. However, did you notice that it said that the Lord would build a house for David? So Solomon later comes, and Solomon is allowed to build the temple for God. And through the line of David is established a house, a house that would stand forever. Who else was in the line of David? I'll give you one hint. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, 
who establishes a line forever and ever, establishes a people for God forever and a kingdom that will last forever and ever. Why wasn't David allowed to build the temple? Wasn't he a man after God's own heart? Yes, we see that in scripture. But we also see that David wasn't allowed to build the house because he was a man of war. He fought many battles. He had blood on his hands. It wasn't necessarily mentioned that he had sinned and murdered Uriah the Hittite, but it was because that David was a man of war. And the temple was supposed to bring peace between God and man. I think that's really interesting. Who is known as the Prince of Peace? Again, one hint. Jesus. When God had given peace to Israel, that's when Solomon was allowed to build the temple for God. So we look again back at verse 127. Uh, Chapter 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house. I can't say for sure, but I do believe that this is in the mind of Solomon. It's not just a house. It's not just a four-bedroom, three-bath, 2,000-square-foot house that he's talking about. I think he's thinking of a house that would last forever where people would dwell together with their God. And unless the Lord builds the house, those who try to build will build in vain. But I think it goes even further back. David wanted to build a temple. And what is a temple at its core? It's a dwelling place of God. It's a tabernacle. You see that God dwelt in an ark in a tent. And what was that called? The tabernacle. And all throughout scripture, we see the temple and we see the tabernacle. But I think it goes all the way back even further to Genesis. God builds a garden and he places the animals in it and then he places man last. And you look at Genesis 1 and you see that God put man there, and what does he tell man to do? What does he tell him to do? To tend the garden. To work the garden. To dominate the garden. But not only that, what does he tell Adam and Eve to do? Be fruitful and multiply. See, I think that, and this is based on what I've read from theologians, and as you read scripture, That the idea was that the garden would grow and grow and grow as people grew. And the number of people grew. And that as Adam and man tended, they did work in a perfect world. That God dwelt among his people. Right? He moved amongst them. They were naked and they knew not evil. And you had the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you had the tree. What other tree was there? What other tree was there? The tree of life. And Adam and Eve can eat from all the trees in the garden and all the fruit, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they were supposed to tend and protect and multiply and create disciples who would worship God who was in their midst. But what did they fail to do? Adam, as the leader, as the representative of all mankind, he failed to keep the serpent out, right? He failed to dominate. And so the serpent comes in, And who knows where Adam is because the serpent manages to find Eve. And we don't know if he was right there. If he was, that's even worse. (laughs) Because the serpent deceives Eve and he says, did God really tell you that you shouldn't? Did God really tell you that you would surely die? 
And when she looked at the fruit and saw that it was pleasing to the eye, she took it and she ate it. And she gave some to her husband. And he ate it. And immediately their eyes were opened. And immediately sin and death entered the world. And what happens after that? What does God do? He sends them out of the garden so that they can't eat of the tree of life and live forever because sin has affected them and God can't dwell with them. They failed. They failed to do what God wanted them to do as co-laborers in this world in what I think is the archetype of the temple where God dwells with man. So what does God have to do? He has to make a way. And how does he make that way? What is the promise that he makes to Adam and Eve? He could have killed them right there, right? That's what was said. If you eat, you will surely die. But he didn't. He made a way through what? The seed of Eve. Through children. She would one day bear a son through her line that would save the world. But Adam and Eve failed. So what does this have to do with 127, 1 and 2? Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. Brothers and sisters, God is sovereign. And he makes plans. But he calls us to work with him. We're co-laborers with God through his grace. And I think Solomon was thinking about this. Unless the Lord does it, it's not going to happen. You're spinning your wheels. Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. See, God is a builder. He's a creator. And he has given us imagination and creativity. We build, we think. This temple-like building was created by men and it's beautiful. The architecture, I look at it often, the arches and some people don't like it, but I think it's beautiful. And you look at some of the old Renaissance churches and they're beautiful and they point upward to God. Even our pinnacles point upward to God. They're meant to draw your eyes up in holy reverence. (coughs) Excuse me. Unless the Lord builds the house. Those of us who have creativity and we build alongside of him, unless the Lord calls us to do what we do, unless we do it according to God's plans, how God wants us to do it, it's in vain, we'll fail. This entire book is replete with men trying to do and make their plans on their own. And it's failure after failure after failure after failure. And God stepping in and saying, no, let me fix your mess. So we move on to the next verse. And unless the Lord watches over the city, not only is the Lord a builder, but he's a keeper. Unless the Lord keeps the city, See, you may build something, but can you keep it? You can start a family, but can you raise them? You can get a job, but can you keep it? Unless the Lord keeps watch over the city. The watchman stays awake in vain. See, again, brothers and sisters, unless the Lord is involved in our plans, unless the Lord is involved in our keeping, unless the Lord is part of our vigilance, all the work what we do, all the upkeep that we do, all the striving and the plan making, the trying to make it grow, the trying to make it sustain, it's in vain. You're going to stay awake and you're going to go to bed and it's all going to be in vain. It's worth nothing. See, the plans that we make to build and the plans that we make to keep, if we're doing it in our own flesh apart from God, it will fail. 
A lot of times we think we are striving and working for the Lord, but we're doing it in our own pride. We're doing it in our own plans. We're not really putting our plans before the Lord. We're kind of acknowledging him. We think, oh, this is what God wants. But we also look throughout scripture when that happens. Remember when the ark was being carried and it almost fell and the man reached out his hand to try to stop it? What happened to him? He died immediately. I always thought that was kind of weird. I'm like, he's trying to protect the ark. He doesn't want the dwelling place of his God where he comes with his people to fall on the ground. He's doing it out of respect. Brothers and sisters, even if you think you are doing something for God, if you are not being obedient in how God wants you to do it, it is sin and you will fail. That's remarkable to me. I think on my own life and all the ways that I've wanted to please God and how I've not done that well, and I don't think it's pleasing. We can try to keep our church going and growing, but if we're not doing it in the way that the Lord wants us to, with the methods that the Lord wants us to, it will fail. If we're not going out into the world and evangelizing, telling the lost about Jesus Christ and the good news of salvation for their souls, who cares if this church lasts, this building lasts? It doesn't matter. If you're trying to protect this church and you're doing it out of pride or doing it in a way that's hurtful to others, you will fail. Unless the Lord keeps the city, unless the Lord is the one watching over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. We can do so many things, but if we're not doing them the way the Lord wants us to do them, we're wrong. We're failing. We need to trust in God's sovereignty. We need to trust that God knows what he's doing. Unless we trust in the sovereign hand of God and seek him as our ultimate protector, we'll stay up. We'll be awake at night. We'll be wrestling in our anxiousness to protect, but it'll be in vain. How many times did Israel and Judah get ransacked? How many times did they try to protect what they believe? Well, we're the people of God. Of course we're going to be safe. But how many times were they taken over and exiled over and over again? Man failed. Because he failed to do what God had told him to do. I've been reading through all the kings of Israel and Judah. And the number of times it says that he did was right in the eyes of the Lord except for this. He failed to tear down the high places. He failed to tear down the Asherahs. And then you have the ones that are really bad. Like Manasseh. Who, then again, later repented. That was what I read about this morning. And he cried out in humility after he was chained with brass monocles. And he cried out and he humbled himself and the Lord heard him. But then you got a son who comes and does even worse than Manasseh. Brothers and sisters, just because we're a church that prizes God's word and prizes good preaching and has solid doctrine for the last decades... Unless the Lord is building and protecting this church. This is a house of cards. Unless you're building your family on the plans of the Lord and inviting him in to see those plans and to make them with you, your family is a house of cards. Unless your marriage is built on what the Lord wants you to do, unless your friendships are built on what the Lord wants you to do, unless every relationship in your life, your work relationships, unless all of those are built on the plans of the Lord. 
and protected by the vigilance of the Lord, they will fail. So we can make all these new plans for a new year, but if we're not doing them with the right motivation for God and his glory, and we're not doing them by acknowledging who God is and bringing our plans to the Lord and saying, God, are we doing this rightly? Are we doing this well? Is there any part of my sinfulness that's a part of this? Will you root that out? Unless we're doing that, our plans will fail. Our resolutions for this new year will fail. When we fail to look at God as the sovereign builder and preserver, when we fail to trust in God and his goodness and his kindness and try to take matters into our own hands, we will fail. Look at the next verse. Verse 2. So how should we respond? Point number three. We've looked at God as the builder. We've looked at God as the keeper. Now, how should we respond to God's sovereignty? Because ultimately, it is God who does it all. We're just invited into the process. He said, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. It's in vain. So there's two ways that we can actually respond to God as builder and God as preserver and his sovereign will. You can buck against it. You can say, you know what, God, I think I know what's best. I think I'm smart enough. I think I'm strong enough. I think I have courage enough. I think I know enough theology. I think I know enough or have enough background. I think I've been here long enough. I think I've got this. So you can buck against it and how the Lord wants you to work within his sovereignty. Walking in the spirit. Displaying the fruit of the spirit. Knowing the one another's and living them out. Discipling one another. Hearing confrontation when someone comes to you and says, brother, or sister, I think you're this way. And taking it to heart and asking the Holy Spirit to root that out. Asking other people in your life who know you and love you, how can I grow in this new year? What do I need to change? You can buck against the work of the Lord and his sovereignty. You can try to control things. By building a consensus. Oh, we all think this way. You can send emails. You can set up tasks. You can get up early to work the angles and stay up late plotting. You can do all of those things. But if you're not working within the sovereignty of God through the way that the Lord wants you to work, you will fail. It will all be in vain. You are just spinning your wheels. And you know what? This verse says that you will plummet into anxiety. You'll eat the bread of your anxious toil. I like that verse. I like how it says that. I like the poetry that it uses. The bread of anxious toil. It's like the wages of sin is death. It's kind of that same language. You will eat the bread of your anxious toil because you have not honored the Lord in your plans and the way you've gone about them. It's interesting. When you look at that word toil, go back with me to Genesis. We talked about this again, and this is where I think, again, Solomon has this in his mind. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, go to verse 16. We've talked about the Lord building the house, the Lord protecting the city. The idea of building this house, the temple where God dwells with his people forever and the archetype of Genesis and the garden being the idea of the temple looking forward. But let me give you an example talking about Adam and Eve when they failed 
to work with God in the way he wanted them to work. We talked about how they were punished. They were kicked out of the garden. But before God kicks them out of the garden, he says this to the woman in verse 16. He said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. And the NIV uses this language. I think it's in the Hebrew. In painful toil, you will bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And then to Adam, he says this, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In painful toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat and the painful toil on your face, you shall eat bread. So you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and dust you shall return. It's interesting there, the use of toil. Man and woman failed to co-labor with God in the way he wanted them to co-labor, building and protecting the garden, and the result was painful toil. Not just for them, but for all of us forever. This is the result This is the result when we don't work with God the way he wants us to. It's all in vain and we fail and we will receive painful toil. And that's what Solomon says going back to verse, to chapter 127. He says, it's in vain. And that vanity connects us to the top two verses. It's in vain you rise up early, striving and strifing and grabbing and grinding And you go to bed late to rest when you're doing it in your own strength. You're just trying to hold on to anything you can and there's tension there and you're trying to make it happen. But you wind up eating the bread of anxious toil where you just can't do enough. Only God ends the day completing every task on his list. Only God At the end of the day, you will always have more to do. There is always something else you will need to do. When we fail to trust in God and his goodness and give him our plans, the result will be a failing exercise in vanity and we'll be anxious and live in painful toil. So what is our responsibility, point four, as co-laborers? Well, the anecdote to living in plans that are antithetical to what God wants is twofold. First, remember that if you are in Christ, God loves you. Look at the end of verse two. To his beloved, and I'm reversing the order, to his beloved, he gives sleep. Beloved, God loves you. Even looking back at the last 365, when plans have failed, when things have gone wrong, when you've experienced trials, when hard things have hit, when you've experienced death and disappointment, that your God loves you. He does. You are his children. If you are in Christ, God loves you. If you're not in Christ, you're at war with God right now. You are building up wrath for yourself. The Bible says that wrath is just stacking on top of itself for you, that one day it will reach that pinnacle and it will be poured out on you and you will experience pain and toil and disappointment far more than you ever have. But if you are in Christ, which I would encourage you to give your life over, to repent of your sins, that God loves you and you are no longer at war with him. You are part of the house that he has been building. And if you are in Christ, he loves you and he gives you rest because you realize that God is sovereign and not just sovereign, but he's good. He loves you. 
And he has the best in mind for you. And he's not going to let you fall flat on your face. And that if you offer your plans, your resolutions, the things you want to accomplish, the things you want to protect, if you offer those to God and you do what he says and you have the proper motivation by his grace and through his means, you will rest. That doesn't mean bad things won't happen to you. It doesn't mean you won't experience trials and troubles. In this world, there is much trouble. But guess what? Jesus has overcome. When we try to strive and, and wrestle and then hold on to things, and when we're anxious, you oftentimes don't sleep. When you try to work through the night and get it done and make it happen for yourself, you don't rest. You're essentially telling God, I don't trust you and I'm going to build and protect myself. But guess what? How many of you have ever pulled an all-nighter? I have. I remember one of my last papers in college, in law school. I stayed up all night. I don't know about you, but when I stay up all night trying to get things done, the next day I'm often usually cranky. And when I'm cranky, I am the nicest person in the world to other people. I love them and I care for them and I prefer them as Bob read this morning so aptly from Philippians 2. No, I usually sin against people. I usually am sarcastic and short and pop off and I don't prefer others. That's what happens when I stay up late. And anxiety often does that to us when we're trying to do it in our own strength. The second part of this, the second response, which is obviously the far better one and the one that the Lord wants us to pursue, is to commit your way to the Lord. Commit your plans, commit your resolutions, commit your life to the Lord in this new year. We're co-laborers in the Lord for, the sanctification, for our sanctification and the building of the kingdom. We read this morning, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. And it, it says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, many people have gotten this verse wrong, thinking, well, it's me who I I." get my salvation through works. No. God in his sovereignty, in his kindness and his mercy, has given you grace and has saved you. But he's also given you the ability to work out your salvation, your sanctification, your growth, your disciplines, to be a co-laborer with God in your life and the life of your family and the life of your church. What does Paul say later on down in verse 14? Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of the crooked and twisted generation who does these things. I'm adding that part in. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. So vastly different doing what God wants us to do the way God wants us to do it. The world doesn't understand that. And you hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain. There's that word. Or labor in vain. That's interesting that Paul uses those words. We are co-laborers with Christ, looking to God's sovereignty. We work the way he wants us to, not grumbling or complaining like this twisted generation preferring others as more important than ourselves, going about God's plans for us so that our work is not in vain. Proverbs 16.3 says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. What does Matthew 6, 33 says? What does our Lord and Savior say to us? Seek the kingdom 
first and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Brothers and sisters, maybe you're fearful that if you commit your plans to the Lord, he's going to ask you to sell all of your goods and move to India and serve the poor. He may do that. I can't tell you he's not. But I think that's a fear that oftentimes people have that the Lord is just going to ask you to go live in some monastery and not talk for the next two years and chant. Brothers and sisters, where the Lord has you right now, this is his will. He wants you to love and serve your families and disciple your children. We won't have time to get into the last couple of verses, but I think they're connected in that God is building a house. Gathering to himself a people. He tells us to go and make disciples of all nations. That's the command in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all people. From all tongues, tribes, and nations. What Adam and Eve were supposed to do, let's do it another way through Christ. And that was always the plan. They just didn't know it. But not only that, build a house through my people. Do you know that most people are Christians in the world because their parents were? This may not be your story, but statistically this is true. That many people, that most people, statistically, are believers because their parents were, their parents discipled them. So when you have lots of children, when there are children in your quiver, and I'm looking over here, <laughs> the elites and the guys, but even as I think about my family, and it's growing, the Lord has given us another child. And it's a blessing, even though it's exhausting. <laughs> and discipline is exhausting. And faithfulness and discipline is hard. As my quiver gets fuller, it's interesting that back to 127, the end, it says in verse 4, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. That's weird. That's a weird verse when you don't get it, that the lay the Lord weaponizes children against this wicked generation is that parents and men would disciple their families to grow into God-honoring children to be disciples, to take his word to the world. It's the big plan of God. To dwell amongst his people, a large people, the number is too vast to know. That will forever worship and serve our God, who will be the temple. When the new Jerusalem comes down and the new heavens and the new earth for all of eternity that we will worship God together. And guess what's there? Revelation 2.7. To him who overcomes will be given the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Later on in chapter 3, it says, to him who overcomes will be made a pillar in the temple of God, and God is the temple in the new Jerusalem. We start with the type of temple. We end with the temple. And the people of God are living with God in their midst. This was the plan from the beginning. Now back to us. Right in the middle. After Jesus came to establish a, high, a priesthood for himself. That each one of us is a royal priesthood nation. We're priests offering worship to God. And guess what? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells in you to bring honor and glory and worship to our God. This was the plan. God's great and wonderful plan. Are you in it or are you bucking against it? Are you striving and, and, and strifling and trying to do all these things for your own glory and your own honor and your own purposes. 
brothers and sisters, this church, all churches that proclaim their trust in the true gospel, we're God's temple. He's the one building his kingdom through the church and he preserves his church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Satan tried in the garden. He said, you know what? God, you want to build for yourself a people in this beautiful garden? I'm going to mess it up. But God is sovereign and he had plans that Satan could not know about. And it was the plan to glorify his son, to gather to himself people from every tongue, tribe, and nation who would forever and ever worship him. That's God's plans. And we're a part of it. We're co-laborers with Christ. And Satan cannot win. But frankly, God doesn't need you to protect his church or to grow his kingdom. The rocks could cry out. The rocks all around our church could cry out and minister to the gospel better than you if God wanted them to. He does not need you to grow or protect his church if you're going to do it in the way that God does not want you to, in a way that's in opposition to what his word says. If you're striving in your own pride because you want to be known as someone who's the protector or the grower or the evangelist or whatever it is, if you want that for yourself, that's not a part of God's plan. Only God gets the glory. Brothers and sisters, as we head into this new year, as you make resolutions, as you make plans, make sure you start with God, the builder and the protector, that you rest in his sovereignty, that your motivation is God's grace and God's glory and not for yourself. Otherwise, your plans will fail. It's an exciting opportunity, another new year. We look forward to seeing what God will do in our own lives, in the lives of our families, in the life of our church family. I'm excited. But I want to encourage us to do it according to God's will. He is building himself a house. It's not made with hands, though. It's a house whose cornerstone is Jesus Christ. And we will be together for all of eternity, worshiping the Lamb and serving our God. I want to read you Jonathan Edwards, as I mentioned at the very beginning, his preamble to his 70 resolutions. Resolutions, a striving for change, that if in our own strength, and if in, he wrote these in his own strength and strived in his own strength, he would fail. But he writes with this. Taking to heart Psalm 127, he says this, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help. I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. Let's pray. <clears throat> Gracious Father, I can't be sure that all of this was in Solomon's mind. But I think it was, and I think it fits. And I think it aligns with what your plans have been and will be for your people. And I think it aligns with what your plans are for every individual here. First, that your will is that we would know you and love you and that we would be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you. This is your will, that you want us to be holy. And the only way we can be holy is that Christ would have taken our place on the cross and taken our punishment and the wrath that we so deserved. And that when you look at us, you see his righteousness. That's where your will begins for our life, that we would no longer be at enmity with you. Father, I pray for anyone who has not repented of their sins, who still is striving and wrestling in their own strength to do what they want, that the Spirit would convict them so much that they would be bothered to their core. 
Save them, Father, through your Son, Jesus Christ. Give them a life that is far better than what they've been living. Lord, as we make plans, as we celebrate the incoming 365 days, as we look back on all that you have done and all the ways that maybe we've walked with you, maybe we've failed, that you would give us the strength and the foresight to bring our plans to you, Father. That our plans would be honoring honoring and glorifying to you. Lord, in all that we do, the rest of this day, the rest of this week, and the rest of this year, I pray that we would not be in vain, but that we would look to your goodness, kindness, and love for your children and trust in your sovereignty. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.